Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, June the 5th. We not only continue in our series in Job, but we're actually going to um, to, to uh, continue with our sermon specifically from last week, looking at Job chapter 8 through 13. We, did, we didn't get very far in our service here at Banner Christian Fellowship, so um, this is uh, really a redo of last week, sort of picking up um, a little later on in the sermon, so um, maybe that's helpful, maybe not, but regardless. When we left Job last week, um, Job was basically asking the question in chapter 9 of, hey, what can I do? How can I get at this whole problem? Uh, he goes on to describe how life becomes incomprehensible where there is no understanding of God. The reference point is gone or uncertain or vague, and we cannot make sense of anything in life. And then in chapter 9, verse 25 through 31, we get the effect that this has on Job. Because of this, he is filled with bewilderment, fear, and despair. But then in chapter 9, verses 32 through 35, out of that deep darkness that, that surrounds this, this suffering Job, a ray of light breaks through, and, in, and it's the first break in Job's gloom. And he says of God, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. And then comes the awareness of what is missing. But there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. What is needed is a mediator, an arbitrator who can come between us and who understands us both and brings us together, Job says. And so for the first time in this book, we begin to see what God is after with Job, why he is putting him through this long and difficult trial. Because now Job begins to feel deep in his bones the nature of reality, that there's this terrible gulf between man and God that must be bridged by another party. Job cannot simply be good enough. His righteousness in and of himself is not righteousness enough. Well, we live in the full light of the New Testament, and we know that he is crying out and falling deep within the need for such a mediator as, of course, Jesus Christ himself. Job is laying the foundation here in his own understanding for that tremendous revelation that comes in the New Testament, that God, in fact, becomes man. God takes our place. God suffers as we have suffered in every way imaginable, feels as we have feel, and that solves the great problem between us and God and brings the two, God and humanity, together. For the first time in Job, we begin to sense what God is driving at, and there's a verse in Psalm 119.71 that says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You see, we can learn theology out of a book, and we can study it and get, get it fairly clear in our mind, but until we go through the hurts and difficulties and the trials of life, we never really understand what the truth is. It takes suffering to get a clear vision of what God is saying to us, and, and that is what the book of Job is all about. And then in chapter 10, the darkness closes in again around Job, and once again, the torment drives him to prayer. And this chapter is breathed out before God and in the presence of his friends. And there are two things that Job asks in this prayer. In verse 2, he says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. And that's the heart of his cry in the first part of this chapter. Let me know what's wrong. And then in verse 20, he says, Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer. 
So his prayer consists of these two cries, let me know or else let me alone, one or the other. And anyone who's gone through suffering knows that this is often the feeling. Explain this to me, God, or, or if you choose to let it go on, then, well, then just leave me alone. And in the first 17 chapters of, of chapter 10, he's searching for answers, examining all the possibilities that might explain why he's going through this. And as we look at these, we see that they reflect the questions that every sufferer feels when they're going through a difficult time. And in, in, in chapter 10, verse 3, Job says, does it seem good to you to, to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the, th- the designs of the wicked? That is, do you get some kind of pleasure out of this? Is, is that why you've put me through this? Does it give you some kind of delight? I, I don't think Job is being sarcastic. I, I think he is really asking, is, is God that kind of a being that this pleases him? And, and if that is the explanation, well, then at least I'm contributing to the pleasure of God by going through something like this. Wow. And he's looking for meaning in this suffering. And then in verses four through seven, he asks, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? He's asking, do you somehow limit yourself to, to man's circumstances and capabilities? Is, is that why you, you put me through this? Somehow, despite your wisdom and knowledge and might that is far beyond humanity, do you limit yourself and put yourself where we are and let yourself act and think like a man? Is, is, that, is, is that what is behind this? And of course, the answer, because of the advantage of the New Testament, of course, God did do that. God did suffer. And I think here we have some implications of the incarnation. Like we said, the great underlying truth of the whole New Testament, that God somehow did limit himself and become a man and put himself in our place. And Job is asking, is that why we go through suffering? And then he argues, can it be reasonable? You, you made me, you formed me, and now you tear me apart? Is that, is that a reasonable thing to do? You who put me together are now destroying me. Is that logical? Is that right? And then in verses 14 through 17, he asks the question, what can I do? What recourse do I have? How can I please you or change in such a way as to alleviate the suffering? If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. Then in chapter 17 of of Job, you renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation towards me. You bring fresh troops against me. What can I do? Where can I turn? As we go through that kind of a list, we see that every argument that has ever occurred to a suffering believer is brought out here in the book of Job. Every nuance of suffering, whether it be mental or physical, emotional, is explored to its limit throughout this book. All the tormenting questions are asked. All the haunting dilemmas are faced. So then anyone going through suffering will find that Job has felt whatever they have and has articulated it amazingly. And the questions are not answered at this point. They will be answered before we're through, but in in a way that I don't think we would ever anticipate in the reading of the story. So because of the silence of God, Job, Job closes the chapter by crying out in verses 18 through 22, well, then leave me alone. Life is youthless. Death is but darkness. Whatever it is, anything, anything 
is better than this. Leave me alone. And then in chapter 11, Zophar, Zophar the zealous, he, he moves up to bad and he opens with this scorching rebuke to Job's sinfulness and folly as, as he sees it. Then Zophar, uh, the, the zealous answered and said, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You can almost see Zophar sort of shaking his fists in righteous indignation in Job's face. He is so sure that he is right. And he accuses Job of wordiness, of foolishness, of mockery, self-righteous smugness. He says that Job's punishment is is richly deserved. That he's he's not only getting what is coming, he he is only getting what is coming to him, and not even all of that. What a what a great friend! <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it so far. And then he goes on in verse seven through twelve to describe Job's sort of ignorance in contrast to, to God's deep wisdom. And, and he says, Can can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. That is, it will never happen. Anybody as stupid as you, Job, will never get any help. And then he just lays it on heavy and hard. And, and then he closes with a vivid description of the shining possibilities that were ahead. If, if only Job will repent, if you set your heart right, if iniquity is in your hand, surely then you will lift up your face without blemish and you will be secure. You'll forget your misery and your life will be bright brighter than the noonday and you will have the confidence you will be protected you will lie down and none nothing will make you afraid but then a very sharp warning at the end of 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 uh, chapter 11 here but then but the eyes of the wicked will fail all way all way of escape will be lost to them all their hope is to breathe their last once again there is no identifying with job's hurt there's no sense of empathy or trying to feel with him, the awful torment of, of mind and spirit that presses him, that squeezes him and drags him from these agonizing cries into the darkness around him. These, these friends, these men, they just lay it on him. They, they, they only see the cold analytical logic of it. And Zophar, of course, speaks with a great deal of passion and force, but there is no sense of offering understanding help. Simply the laying on of passionate knowledge passionate righteousness, self-righteousness. And once again, these men seem to approach this whole problem from a purely theological point of view. This is the difference between theology and the experience of a man who was taught by the Holy Spirit. Theology can be very clear and right, but it's all heady. And when we are dealing with the hurting problems of life, we must add a deeper dimension, that compassion, that Jesus manifested, that sympathy of touch that identified with the hurt and opened the door of the Spirit to receiving what light might be given through words. 
The first round ends with Job's sarcastic defense in chapters 12 through 14. And the first part is Job's answers to his friends. The second is his prayer before God. And, and we'll leave that for, for later on. But in Job chapter 12, then Job said, no doubt you are the people with wisdom and, and it will die with you. We know exactly how he felt. These men had all the answers. They knew all the, they knew all the problems, Job says. Do we know people like that? Do we know people that seem to have every single conundrum and issue and heartache and, and everything just figured out and they sort of have it all figured out scripturally and biblically. And if you don't know anybody like that, then maybe you yourself are like that. You know, it's a know-it-all. When you pass from the scene, there's not anything left. And then in verse three to the end of the chapter, he points out that they deal with simple things, things that anybody could know, but I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? You haven't helped me. Anyone knows this. You haven't added anything to me. And then he, he begins to de- to detail it. He says, I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, I, just a just and blameless man. I'm, I'm a laughing stock. Why? Because in the thought of one who is at ease, there is no contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. You don't understand because you've never been here. You haven't felt what I feel. And we know how familiar that argument is. And then Job says, you haven't faced all the facts. In verse six, the tents of robbers are at peace. And those who provoke God are secure and bring their God in their hand. You tell me God always punishes unrighteousness, but look around. There are open idolaters who bring their idols in their hands. There are robbers living at peace who dwell secure. God is not punishing them. Life, life itself, the facts, guys, testify that you're wrong. And he says that nature confirms it. God deals as he pleases. There's no way of predicting his actions. And then finally, in this moving, beautiful passage filled with great passion for us, Job shows in chapter 12, verses 13 through 25, that he understands God just as well as they do. Again, we're not going to take time to read that whole passage, but I hope that you will do so. It's, it's beautiful, and, and it's a tribute to the majesty and the might and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 13, Job continues his defense before his friends, and he says that their words have not helped. Their silence would actually help more. Uh, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you. Oh, that you would just keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. He tells them that if God judges him, he will judge them. And, and, and if he overwhelms him, well, he's going to overwhelm them also. And that they are actually exactly in the same boat. Because you see, Job remembers that that he is in the same boat. You see, he was one of the friends, or and 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 events that that uh, preceded that were before this his trial. He he was the one offering this exact same advice. So his final plea is to just to leave him alone, that he might come before God himself and debate this whole matter. Leave, leave me and let me have silence and I'll speak and, and let come on me what may. What should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Verse 15 is translated very differently in the King James. This is the, the famous passage that's often quoted from Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
This is a great cry of hope and trust, but it's not really what Job said. What he said is better translated in the RSV. Behold, he will slay me. I have no hope, yet I will defend my ways to his face. He is determined, Job says, to defend himself. He expresses one bit of hope in in verse 16. This will be my salvation, that a godless man will, will not come before him. If I am really godless, I, I, I will not get a chance to come before him. But if he will give me a chance, I have my case all prepared. And, and the very fact that he will listen to me indicates that at least I have a chance. So he concludes, listen carefully to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is there that will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. And beginning at verse 20 through the rest of the chapter and through chapter 14, Job presents the case that that he has prepared before God. And he tells us what he would say if he could talk to God. We'll leave that for next time. But here he simply makes a plea that they stop arguing and listen to him and help him by their silence, if not by anything else. How many of us have thought about our case before a holy God? Oh, but if we had an intercessor, oh, if there was one who had suffered in every way that we have, who would plead our case before God. Oh, if there was one that when God saw us, only saw him. Surely, if nothing else, the book of Job helps us to be careful in our approach to the suffering of others so that we don't add to it. You know, these friends are of Job, they're so rigid in their theology Are we so rigid in our theology that we're not teachable and so blind to the great dimensions of God that neither they nor Job understand that they are the that they are only increasing to the torture of this poor man? And I think that's why we hear in from Paul later in Romans and something that that we would do well to take to heart. And it's why the scripture beckons us. It exhorts us to weep with those who weep, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Praise God. Amen. And God bless.